are Locked On Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12. This is Corbin Smith, your host for Locked On Seahawks. Joining me as always, my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. Holy cow, we have a victory Monday. It's felt like an entire calendar year since the last time that we got to cover a Seahawks victory, but it happened with the Seahawks finishing off a season sweep of the 49ers yesterday, a thrilling 30-23 to victory over their rivals at Lumen Field. And at 4-8, and eight, somehow the Seahawks have increased their chances of making the playoffs from 2% to 3%. So... You're saying there's a chance the Seahawks are still in the hunt somehow, some way. A lot to play for, as Pete Carroll said today. They're not dead yet. So we got a lot of fun stuff to talk about in today's show. Going to tackle your questions in our Monday mailbag and plenty of takeaways from yesterday's win. Thanks for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen every day. We are free and available on all platforms. Now for your lead story here on Locked On Seahawks. The Seahawks overcame a 10-point deficit in the first half to beat the 49ers 30-23 to yesterday, a much-needed victory to improve to 4-8, and snap a three-game losing streak, and continue their dominance over the 49ers. But it's a win that may have come at a cost. Most notably, Rob, Jamal Adams exiting early in the second quarter with a shoulder injury. Pete Carroll then tells reporters after the game it's the same shoulder that he had surgery on to repair a torn labrum this offseason. Came back out in the second half in street clothes. At this point, we haven't gotten any updates on his status. Pete Carroll today, two different interviews, was unable to provide any updates on his shoulder. So this could be a case maybe where no news is good news or maybe no news is really bad news. We don't know. At this point, there's been no information. But this would be a huge loss for the Seahawks if he has to miss any period of time. Even with Ryan Neal being a capable backup that has replaced him in the past, Adams had been playing his best football as of late, and that would just be a major blow to this defense. Yeah, there's no question about it. Um, you know, Jamal Adams is a terrific football player, especially when he's being used correctly uh, near the line of scrimmage, making some big plays in coverage uh, over these last few weeks as well. Um, I, I love, though, that, that you mentioned Ryan Neal and, and the fact that Ryan Neal has played really good football for the Seahawks as well. Um, so the Seahawks are in a relatively decent position uh, to replace Jamal Adams if they absolutely had to do so. But um, again, the, the fact that, that Pete Carroll did not make Make any specific mention uh, or with any updates, um, despite having two different opportunities, that really was surprising to me, um, and I think is is kind of bodes uh, poorly uh, for Jamal Adams being able to make any type of quick turnaround and back onto the field for the Seahawks. Yeah, they've got to hope that this is one of those cases where they simply just haven't gotten an assessment, or they're just waiting and seeing how he feels the next day or two, and they're not concerned about it being a severe injury. Maybe they're just being extra cautious because that was the surgery. Uh, the surgically repaired shoulder from this offseason. That could be part of their thinking. Maybe it's a game they felt like we can win without Jamal. Let's get him out of the lineup so that he can be back for the rest of the season. Or in worst case scenario, it's a lot worse situation than that. Hopefully the Seahawks don't have to worry about that. But if he is going to miss time, Ryan Neal does give them some flexibility. The Seahawks had a few other injuries in yesterday's game as well. This is another one that I think is pretty significant, at least from the standpoint that Brandon Shell has started a lot of games for the Seahawks at right tackle for the past 
two seasons, but he's been playing through a shoulder issue that has really been hindering him towards the end of games. He's gotten weaker as games have gone on because he's dealing with a bum shoulder. And for the second time in, I believe, three games, they had to replace him in the fourth quarter. This time with Stone Forsythe, he was replaced a few weeks ago by a backup tackle as well. That is obviously not an ideal situation for the Seahawks. Forsythe did a good job filling in for him, but they've got to get Brandon Shell right here if they have their heart set on going on a run here and trying to make things interesting in terms of the playoff race. They need their line at full strength. Maybe Forsythe can handle those duties, but this looks to me like this is a situation. He's not going to practice Wednesday or Thursday. Pete Carroll's already confirmed that. It seems to me like we're going to see at least one week of Forsythe starting at right tackle, or Jay Curran might be the starter too, depending on how the left guard situation plays out. But I would be, I'd be really surprised if Brandon Shell was out there this week, just trying to get him rested up enough that he can contribute the rest of the season. Yeah, like we said, I mean, we all know that Pete Carroll is the eternal optimist, but uh, just his tone and and the fact that uh, that he just said it pretty emphatically that Brandon Show was not going to be available any any way that he was going to be available for practice on Wednesday and Thursday, um, and, and so that does not sound like uh, that he is expecting Shell to be able to return for this upcoming game, um, you know. Or, or on the other hand, he. Uh, Pete Carroll sounded a little bit more optimistic that Damian Lewis might be able to return at that left guard spot. If that is indeed the case, I wouldn't be surprised at all if Jake Kieran, rather than Stone Forsythe, is the player who winds up being the, the, the primary backup or, in this case, perhaps the starter at the right tackle position. I thought it was interesting that after Kieran played fairly well, um, you know, at, at let when pushed into duty at left guard against the 49ers, that, that Carroll described him as a tackle. Um, you know, and so to me, um, that's where Jake Kieran, of course, had, had all of his experience at Cal um, and, and where he made this football team is how he played at that right tackle position. But I did think that that was an interesting distinction there. Um, to me, another injury of note that uh, that we have to kind of mention is along the defensive line. I thought the Seattle did a remarkable job of slowing down. Um, San Francisco's def, uh, running game, all the more impressive that uh, that Brian Monet went down with, with a knee injury, got braced up and returned back to the game. I thought that, that was uh, an impressive show of toughness by Brian Monet when they needed him most. Yeah, they really needed him yesterday because they were playing Al Woods as a big defensive end for a good chunk of this game. So they were already hurting from a depth standpoint in terms of big bodies in the middle. And so it's good news that Monet was able to come back in and finish the game out. We'll see how he responds the next few days. This could be one of those cases where adrenaline kicked in and he might not be able to play this next weekend, which would not be good news heading into a game. Even though the Houston Texans are one of the worst teams in the NFL, that would really diminish their depth in the interior and maybe open things up a little bit for the Texans to be able to get their run game going. So that'll be an injury to watch, but – I think the Damian Lewis situation, I think that's really good news. They could have Alex Collins back this week. Pete Carroll made it sound like after the game yesterday that he was very close to playing against the 49ers. So probably after another week here to rest up, get healthier, has a good chance to play. But they won't necessarily have to rush him, as we'll talk about later in the show. Got some pretty good production from their running backs yesterday in a number of different ways. So if he's not fully healthy, they might want to just move forward for one more week, give him one more week to rest, and then try to bring him back for their road game against the Rams coming up in week 15 in a game that could end up being a critical one if the Seahawks go into Houston to win this weekend. And then they're just two games or three games or 500. That game against the Rams would be a huge one 
going down the final stretch run. When we come back, we're going to tackle your questions here, our Monday mailbag segment. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Does this sound familiar? You've got one device that lets you catch the game live, another that lets you stream your favorite shows. You're watching sports highlights on your phone, and you've got your neighbor's best friend's login. Well, I want to tell you about a simple way to get all the entertainment you love without the aforementioned hassle and a great way to finally get your TV together. It's called DirecTV Stream. It brings your live TV and on-demand favorites together like never before, so you can watch your favorite sports, movies, and shows all in one place. No more juggling remotes. No more need to buy another device ever again. And the best part, there's no annual contract. So get rid of the clutter and the confusion and get your TV together with DirecTV Stream. You can learn more at directtv.com. That's directtv.com. Welcome back to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, Victory Monday. I'm your host, Corbin Smith, joined as always by Rob Rang, as we do each and every Monday, at least on our regular weeks. It's time to answer our listener mailbag questions here in our weekly mailbag. First question coming from Ryan T. Can you give me a breakdown on what a running back has to look for in pass protection? That's a really interesting question I could talk for 20 minutes about. I'm going to try to give a short answer, make it short and sweet. But running backs, first and foremost, you have to know what the defense likes to do going into games. There's a game planning aspect that goes into that. And you work on that in the practice field. A lot of times you go through walkthroughs to know what type of blitzes that teams have run frequently, because that's the biggest thing. When you are a back in pass protection, you have to know what your assignment's going to be. You have to know what your linemen are doing. And that changes week to week, depending on the team that you're playing against. There might be one opponent where an edge rusher that's flying off the edge, an extra rusher, is going to get picked up by your left tackle or right tackle, and your responsibility is going to be taking a player from the interior. There might be other weeks where they're going to leave that guy untouched, and then it's your responsibility to come up with your hard hat and make sure they don't get to the quarterback. So a lot of it depends on the scheme that you're going against, the type of tendencies that your opponents have, and there are adjustments that are made with that in-game. You really got to be able to communicate as far as the physical aspect. I think pass protection for running backs is 70% mental. And then, of course, you got your 30%, the actual physical part. You got to make sure that you don't get too deep to the line of scrimmage, but you also don't want to be too far back either because then the defender can just hit you. You take a step back and you're right in the quarterback's grill. So you got to find that mid ground and then you've got to be able to keep your feet chopping. You don't want to go up there hitting a defensive end and firing your hands into them and then just have your feet get set in the ground. Offensive linemen might be able to do that, but 200 pound running backs going against huge defensive ends can't. So you got to keep those feet buzzing. You got to fire the, you got to fire the hands. You got to get low, and then you got to keep drive, drive, driving, and make sure that you don't let that defender get to the quarterback. So that's the physical aspect. But there's just the, the mental one-two that really goes into play here too. There's a lot of really talented athletes at the running back position that str- that struggle in pass protection because they don't have that one-two aspect or that willingness to do it. Saw a lot of examples yesterday of Seahawks running backs being more than willing to go do the dirty work. And so that was a good sign for Seattle's backfield. Next question coming from Blackout. The doctors told Russell Wilson it could possibly be eight weeks that he would be out in the game against the 49ers. Marked eight weeks since his surgery. He finally looked like Russell Wilson again. Thoughts? Yeah, doctors should be trusted 
not not just in this case, but uh, you know, but but in most cases, uh, especially everything that's going on in our world right now, you know, I mean, I think that uh, that it was predictable that that Russell Wilson would play better. In fact, Pete Carroll, uh, you know, did predict that that Russell Wilson would play better at this point because, as Blackout mentioned, I mean, it had been eight weeks was the initial diagnosis, and I, I think that we all saw a return of Russell Wilson to back to being Russell Wilson. I mean, his some of the accuracy on some of the, the some of the throws that he made especially that deep ball the dk metcalf that that set up adrian peterson's rushing touchdown i mean it looked like russell wilson of old again and, and so um I, again I, I thought that that was uh, anyway, a sign of, of good things to come uh for potentially a very exciting conclusion to a 2021 season third question here coming from julian langdon is it a good allocation of cap resources if by paying quandre diggs the Seahawks end up spending more money on two safeties than they do on their entire offensive line. That is a really good question. And I think in a lot of cases that I would say that is not a good allocation of resources, especially for a team like Seattle that's had so many problems with trying to keep a stable, effective offensive line in front of Russell Wilson over the years. But you also have to understand the importance of safeties in the defensive scheme. And I've talked about this so many times on our podcast, Rob, that this is a scheme that Pete Carroll runs that the safeties have to be elite players. And they have shown in the past they will pay those players. They just did it with Jamal Adams. We saw Cam Chancellor and Earl Thomas get mega deals. Uh, Cam Chancellor got a couple of them during his time in Seattle. So they will pay elite safeties. So I would not be surprised if they do that with Quandre Diggs. They have put themselves in a pretty tough spot, though, because they could have extended him for the season. And each and every week, that price tag is just getting more expensive to re-sign him because he is continuing to play at an all-pro level. Had his fourth interception of the year yesterday to help the Seahawks beat the 49ers. So he's just getting more expensive by week. It feels like it should be one of those rare December extensions, but at the same time, from Diggs' perspective, I want to see what free agency has to hold at this point. I might be able to just break the bank going somewhere else or staying here in Seattle, depending how much they're willing to pay me. But I think from Seattle's perspective – if it's two players like Diggs and Adams, then it makes a lot of sense. But in most cases, I would say you probably want to allocate your resources a little bit differently towards the offensive line in this instance. Nathan DeVaz tweets, what happened with the 49ers botched snap at the end of the third quarter? Why couldn't the Seahawks decline the penalty? I believe he's talking about the fourth down play where Jimmy Garoppolo decided it would be a good idea to run right at Al Woods, and that didn't necessarily work in his favor. No, it certainly did not. And it looked like the Seahawks were going to be able to, to, to get the ball back right there. And so I'd be curious to hear the NFL's explanation uh, of this. Uh, it didn't look like the, the referee's explanation to Pete Carroll went over too well. Um, you know, but um, I think what it basically came down to is it's very likely that once there was a, a, a pre-snap penalty called, then the referees or the umpire, uh, you know, likely blew the whistle and that ruled the play dead. Um, again, that's one of the reasons why I would like to see uh, the play be able to kind of continue similar to baseball where you see a batter who will you know, put his hand up at the very, very end uh, while the pitcher is in motion. And usually the, the, you know, the, uh, you know, usually the back umpire will allow the pitcher to continue his motion. I would like to see the play continue. Um, but now obviously that was not the case for the Seahawks and they wound up losing that turnover opportunity, giving San Francisco an opportunity to punt the football and, and Seattle losing an awful lot of yardage at a critical point in the game. Yeah, I think that was a really big play. That was a big sequence of events there because they would have had the ball in 49ers territory on a turnover on downs 
that's what would have happened there. But I'm just assuming that the play just carried on after the whistle and they didn't hear the whistle and that loud stadium. That happens time to time. So not something I think that Seahawks fans should really be that upset about, in all honesty. Brave RC tweets, can you explain why Freddie Swain is the punt returner? It's obvious that he doesn't want any part of return duty. So that second part of that question, I think that what you're seeing out there, he doesn't necessarily look comfortable right now returning punts. And I'm surprised by that because he was a very effective punt returner at the University of Florida. And this is a guy that has all the physical tools to be a really good return man. He's got legitimate 4-4 speed. He's a guy that's got good vision typically. He's usually an aggressive player, but I haven't seen that on punt return. You got to wonder if there's been a few times, a few of those returns that haven't necessarily went the way that he wanted to in terms of catching the ball, if that is something that's weighing on his mind right now. Because he's let some balls hit the ground on punts and then bounce for a bunch of yardage to benefit the other team. He's let that happen a few times, and that can't be something that Larry Izzo, Seattle special teams coach, is too happy about. They did throw DJ Reed back there after the safety yesterday. So I'm wondering if there is going to be a shakeup there moving forward because Freddie Swain, quite frankly, has underwhelmed in that role. Pratik tweets, how did Stone Forsythe and Jake Kieran look after you watched the film? Rob, I'm going to leave this one to you because you were just raving about the two of them before the show. Well, that, that's the thing is that I, it's it, to me is one of the most impressive things about Seattle's victory here is the fact that you had a, a very late round draft pick an undrafted free agent going up against a fearsome San Francisco pass rush. And it, obviously the Seahawks emerged from victory, um, you know, so it, it was kind of a, a tale of two halves in, in some ways. Um, I, I saw Jake Kieran struggle a little bit in pass protection. Um, the reality is, is that he had very rarely played at the guard position, and it's just the close quarters of playing guard compared to tackle. There, there were some times that he was just flat beaten off the snap. Um, but at the same time, I really love the way that he got after it in the running game. Um, he, he showed his awareness and being able to, uh, you know, to, to switch off, uh, you know, in pass protection, get up to the second level in the running game. It, it was very rare, at least in the running game, that you saw Jake Kira not have his hands on somebody not finishing the play. Um, and, and so to me, that was one of the things that was very encouraging about it. I, I really think that Jake Kieran has that want to. We talked about, or you talked about earlier, Corey, about the running back explanation and, and a good one at that about pass protection and picking up blitzes. To me, Jake Kieran has that want to. And that's one of the most exciting things about him. Stone Forsyth, on the other hand, I thought was the better pass protector, but didn't get much push in the running game. And that would be one of my biggest concerns. One of the reasons why I think that the Seahawks may wind up going with Kieran at that right tackle position if they are forced to and if Damian Lewis is able to return uh, at his standard left guard spot. Chad tweets, if he ends the year strong, how much would you be willing to pay Rashad Penny to come back? Unless Rashad Penny just randomly goes off for several hundred plus yard games, I don't see any way that he's getting anything other than veteran minimum. Now, maybe the Seahawks could put some incentives in there if he's healthy because he has played well when he has been healthy and he's been playing with confidence and he's in a rhythm, we've seen those flashes. He just hasn't been able to stay healthy long enough to be able to truly fulfill his potential during his four seasons with Seattle. So if he's able to finish the year strong, I could see Seattle wanting to bring him back, but I wouldn't be doing anything above veteran minimum on a one-year deal. I need to see him stay healthy and really be productive for an entire season, something we just haven't seen. The four years been with the Seahawks. So I can't guarantee any more money than that, especially the running back position. I do think they could have some interest in bringing him back if the end of the season plays out well and he's able to 
contribute for the run game and as a receiver. And last question here, Harvey tweets, why is the pass rush, and he was very blunt about this, why has the pass rush been so damn disappointing? I mean, it's true. I mean, their pass rush has not met the expectations that were thrown out there before the season. Why do you think that's the case, Rob? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons for this, Corbin. I think that the first one, and earlier in the season, I think that the secondary play was just so bad um, that, uh, that you know, Seattle's pass rush was basically unable to get home. Um, I think that the way that you're seeing NFL teams now, um, especially at the quarterback position, they, they just get the football out so quickly. Then I thought the Seattle made some really curious decisions with how they employed some of their defensive linemen. Seeing a guy that is 280 pounds like Carlos Dunlap dropping into coverage, Rasheem Green, the same kind of thing, when their game has always been more about getting pressure upfield, to me was kind of surprising. And I understand that you want to do some uh, some different looks to be able to try and trick defender, or trick quarterbacks, but I just didn't see there being a lot of tricks that actually were working out in, in Seattle's favor. I also think that, that Seattle is very much trying to get some of their young pass rushers going, specifically with Daryl Taylor. And you see some of the speed and, and bend that, that Daryl Taylor has to be able to get upfield and push quarterbacks up to step up into the pocket. And, and so to me, those are things that the Seahawks have done a lot better job of getting quarterbacks to move off of their spot and not necessarily actually getting sacks. So the quarterback pressure rate is actually much more impressive for Seattle than their sack rate. But at the same time, the proof is in the pudding. you got to be able to take quarterbacks down. And it's felt like so many times the Seahawks had quarterbacks in the grasp and have been unable to actually bring them to the ground. That's why it was so uh, impressive to see Seattle finally be able to get a consistent pass rush against the 49ers. I think that was absolutely critical in them being able to pull off the win. Yeah, they were much better in the second half when they shut out the 49ers. I felt like the first half, there were a lot of plays Jimmy Garoppolo had a bazillion years in the pocket, but they were able to ramp things up a little bit. Just been a very inconsistent group, though, and it's been disappointing because they had most of their cast back from last year when they really finished the year on a strong note, rushing the passer, and particularly Carlos Dunlap. It's just been a disappointing season, but maybe they can put it together here these last five games, and who knows? Uh, like I said beginning of the show, somehow – they are still alive in the playoff race. Not much, but they are alive. They've got a little bit of a pulse after this game against the 49ers. So feeling pretty good about their chances if they can find a way to get on a long winning streak to close out this season. We're going to break down everything we saw and heard in this 49ers game yesterday. Seahawks coming out on top 30-23 to in what I called an exciting train wreck because that's really what this game played out like. We're going to break down the good and the bad on offense, defense, and special teams when we return. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. This holiday season, grab the protein bar that tastes like a candy bar or even better than a candy bar, the Built Bar, filled with so much holiday goodness, rich with decadent flavor and covered in chocolate, Amazingly low in calories, sugar, net carbs, and fat, and high in protein. So you're getting the best of both worlds. Delicious and healthy. So many great flavors. If you're like me, you're going to have a really hard time choosing raspberry, mint brownie, cherry, double chocolate, peanut butter brownie. The amazing flavors are endless. Built Bar gives you that extra fuel you need to bust down those mall doors and battle all the holiday shoppers. Or if you're just standing in endless shopping lines, Built Bar can give you that extra something to keep you going. So throw one in your jacket or purse. You never know when you're going to need it. You friends with Santa? Well, tell Santa to throw a few Built Bars in those stockings with so many flavors, they'd want to make anyone's Christmas morning a happy one. 
Want to wake up to something warm? Here's a holiday secret. Dip your Built Bar into a piping hot cup of cocoa. Let it melt a little and give your beverage a bit of a Built Bar flavor. Plus, you'll have a nice melty Built Bar to go with it. Be sure to have a couple napkins on hand. Go to Built.com and use the promo code LOCKED15 and you'll get 15% off your next order. Bet Online has you covered all season with more props, odds, and lines than ever before as football season continues the march to the playoffs. Bet Online remains your number one spot for all the sports action this season. Head to their, their new updated desktop or mobile website to sign up today and receive your 50% off welcome. Bonus on your first deposit. Just use the promo code locked on to receive your bonus from basketball, football, NHL, boxing, and UFC right to your favorite Vegas casino games. Don't wait to take advantage of all the amazing offers available for the 2021 season. Bet online is the fastest and easiest way to bet all of your favorite sports. That's bet online where the game starts. Welcome back to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, Victory Monday edition. I'm your host, Corbin Smith. Glad to be joined, as always, by Rob Rang. The Seahawks snapped their three-game losing streak and finished off a season sweep of the 49ers on Sunday, much to the delight of the 12s at Lumen Field. Coming back from a 10-point deficit in the first half, for a 30-23 to 23 victory. Again, I'll keep saying it over and over again. This was such an odd game because you can't say that it was very well played. Both teams made a lot of mistakes, but at the same time, it was so darn thrilling. I mean, they moved this game from prime time to the afternoon slot in favor of Denver and Kansas City because of Seattle's disappointing record, and I can understand that, but they're probably sitting back now at NBC like, man, we could have had a killer primetime game if that 49er Seahawks game would have played out the way that it did. It was a back-and-forth affair, and it was a lot of fun to watch, even if it wasn't the prettiest of football. No, it certainly was not the, the prettiest of football. And and you know Pete Carroll used that as part of the incentive, as part of the message. Um, you know, like, look, you're you're no longer the big story anymore. The NFL has completely changed their schedule to, get, to flex you out of prime time and and so i'm sure that was part of the message that that he sent and while it wasn't pretty um at the same time i can tell you one thing that was pretty was the 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 travis homer and, and being able to pull off that that 73 yard fake punt for a touchdown that really got the 12s excited and it wasn't just the the execution of the play the, the, but it was the courage to call that play at that point i thought that this was a game you and i both talked about corbin that the seahawks could win this game but they had to be able to get ahead because you can allow that San Francisco pass rush to get going. You allow their running game to get going. This could have been an ugly game. Instead, the Seahawks took the bull by the horn, so to speak. And I think that that really shocked the 49ers. And then perhaps got the Seattle crowd up on up in arms uh, to be able to kind of defend their home. Because from watching on the television, there was an awful lot of red in that in those stands. There was, but all those 49ers fans got sent packing in a bad mood with the way that this game ended up playing out. And all the dedicated 12s that were at home, they were able to enjoy a rare victory this season. And the Seahawks just continued to put the word special into special teams. You mentioned it, the fake punt with Travis Homer. 99.9% .9 of the time in that situation, you're not going to see a, a gutsy play call like that. But it shows how much trust that Pete Carroll and Larry Izzo have in Travis Homer because they gave him the green light going into this game, and it's a week-to-week -week basis on these decisions. But if you see the right front and you think you can get the first down, 
we're giving you the free reign. You've got the green light to call that direct snap and call your number. And he decided to do it there. And if you watch the tape, you understand why. The 49ers had nobody over there off the edge towards Travis Homer's side. So he was going to walk and get the first down on that play. But it was a huge crease after he got the snap and then very wisely allowed Nick Ballor. And Ballor was joking about this after the game. He gave me a chance to catch up, but allowed Ballor to come up there and make a key block to spring him about 40 yards downfield, ended up with a 73-yard touchdown, ignited the crowd. And the 49ers came back and ended up taking a 17-7 to lead. So it's not like that play is ultimately what won this football game, but it was the type of play that gave the Seahawks a chance to win. And it was the, the aggressive mindset that they had. And Pete Carroll's talked about this today in both of his interviews. They were just going for it. And some might wonder, why haven't you been doing that up to this point before this game? But whatever it was, they were aggressive. They were making bold decisions. They were running trick plays. And they were very successful with those opportunities. And then continuing with special teams, Nick Bloor punching out the football out of Travis Benjamin's hand to open the third quarter. And then guess who? Travis Homer recovers the fumble. The Seahawks unfortunately couldn't do anything with that great field position, but it was a big turnover on special teams. They had a couple nice punts by Michael Dixon on one particular play. John Reed and Penny Hart were able to corral Brandon Ayuk four yards after he got the ball with a negative four loss inside the 10 yard line. The 49ers had to punt three plays later. So this group, just continues to play lights out of special teams. They did it all of last year. They've done it for the most part all of this year. Continues to be a major strength for this football team. And then on the offensive side of the ball, really started off sluggish. It really felt like the first five or six drives, you're just going to watch the Arizona, Washington, and Green Bay games all over again. The pass protection was not there. Russell Wilson was running for his life. There was a strip sack. The ball went 80 yards behind him, and they had like second and 93. So it was just a disaster, those first five or six possessions, in large part because the protection wasn't there. They weren't able to get the ball downfield, and yet they seemed to find life late in the second quarter. And, and I think there were two guys that really led that charge, Russell Wilson obviously being the third there. But I thought Adrian Peterson had some hard running that really got them going, really made the entire team get fired up. And then, of course, rookie D. Eskridge had two huge catches on their final drive at the end of the half to cut the lead to two points going into halftime, including his first career touchdown, a seven-yard score. He had a big third down conversion a few plays before that. So it was nice to see the rookie finally able to contribute and start doing some damage on offense, really sparked this team for the rest of the game. Yeah, it really did. Uh, I mean, that, that to me was one of the most exciting things about it. As, as you mentioned, I mean, Seattle dropped down to 17-7, to and it looked like this game was going to kind of go down the wastebasket like a lot of other games so far this year. Um, but I think the resiliency that they showed, and, and to me this kind of goes back to why you bring in a veteran like an Adrian Peterson in the first place, because the man brings an element of toughness back to this Seahawks squad that, frankly, I haven't seen since number 32 Chris Carson has gone down. Look, I have a lot of respect for a lot of the other running backs that the Seahawks have, but none of them just lay the thunder uh, the way that Adrian Peterson did. You, you could see that he would be met at the line of scrimmage and then barrel ahead for another couple of yards. And that kind of stuff is what can get a team excited. And so you, you mentioned the, the impact that Adrian Peterson had, that D. Eskridge had. Um, we talked before about the the two rookie offensive linemen, just fresh blood out there and, and good old fashioned physicality and toughness. 
Um, and then going back to the special teams unit as well, they just really set the tone. To me, this was one of the few games, Corbin, where I thought the Seahawks set the tone uh, rather than their opponents. And, and because of that, it's not surprising that they were able to muster out a win. In fact, that's how they did it at the end with Carlos Dunlap switching over to the defensive side of the ball for a moment here. You know, literally just bulldozing uh, the, the pass blocker, trying to slow him down. So, again, setting the tone, being the more physical players and the more physical mindset. And I think that's the biggest reason why they emerged with the, with the victory. I think the play that really swung momentum in this game, you mentioned it in the second quarter. It's third and 14. The Seahawks, in a third and long situation, they have not been able to convert many of those. And most teams don't. Those are really difficult plays to move the chains on. And yet, DK Metcalf did a fantastic job getting an inside release against his defender. Gets down the field. Russell Wilson throws a perfect ball. And it was not his typical rainbow. He had to throw it on a line to get it to DK Metcalf downfield. 33-yard gain inside the five. A couple plays later, Adrian Peterson's in the end zone for his 126th touchdown in his career. He tied Jim Brown with that touchdown. So he's already more accomplished than Franco Harris and Edron James were in their legendary careers with the Seahawks. But nonetheless, uh, it, was, it was a big play. Got the momentum back on Seattle's side. But I thought that pass to DK Metcalf really woke this offense up. And then the next drive, a couple big plays from D. Eskridge. Still getting some good runs from Peterson. And then second half, I'm going to keep talking about the running backs because Rashad Penny, he has been a punching bag for fans and for media members for the entirety of his four years in Seattle because he has not been able to stay healthy, inconsistent production. But I don't care if his stat line says 10 carries for 35 yards, 3.5 yards per carry, nothing great. I thought he played a fantastic game yesterday. He had a couple of 10-plus yard runs. He had a 27-yard, was a spectacular 27-yard gain on a screen play in the fourth quarter that unfortunately got wasted by a fumble by Gerald Everett at the goal line. But it was a fantastic screen on third down, and he picked up 27 yards to get into the red zone. And then he made a spectacular play in pass protection, too, a safety blitzing untouched off the edge. And I'll go back. I talked pass protection in the second quarter. This was a really impressive example by Rashad Penny because he was running a play fake, a handoff fake, going to his right and somehow stopped midway through the fake. He caught wind of that safety coming off the edge from the other side, stopped his fake, got down on the ground, cut blocked the safety, and Russell Wilson steps to his left, fires a 17-yard strike to DK or to D. Eskridge. It was a fantastic all-around play in pass protection. I was just stunned it was Rashad Penny because that's not his game normally. He's not known for his pass protection, but it was that kind of game. I thought all the running backs that played yesterday gave Seattle different elements that helped the offense finally get untracked. No, 100% agree with you. Uh, you know, again, we know how Pete Carroll is. I mean, he will sometimes uh, highlight some plays from the game and just kind of tell the truth Tuesdays and things like that. And, um, you know, but uh, the, and he did highlight that particular play that you're talking about there with uh, with Rashad Penny being able to locate that blitzer and then not only locate him, but actually be able to do something about it. Um, and he put a shoulder out there and, and knocked the blitzer down and gave Russell Wilson the time to make his an accurate pass uh, to D. Eskridge to be able to make that reception. I, I love the, the the wherewithal from D. Eskridge late in the game um, where he caught a ball on, on the left sideline, took a big hit, bounced off of it, and then got out of bounds. Um, the, the ability to spin off of the would-be tackler to score his first NFL touchdown. To me, that was one of the exciting things about this. And, you know, Corbin, as you well know, 
Um, I know I've been as critical of Russell Wilson, critical of Seattle's running game, critical of their offensive line and, and some of the, the lack of receptions and, and, and frankly, the, you know, quick routes um, from, from some of the, the play callers and the receivers and tight ends. But I thought that this was a very well-played game in a lot of different ways for the Seahawks. So for all of those critics out there who have been very vocal in their criticism of Seattle, I think that you have to be just as vocal, just as effusive in your praise now. Because the Seahawks, again, they were the tone setters in this game. They needed to win this game, and they did so. So give them a little bit of credit. They, they deserve it. Yeah, the defense deserves a lot of credit for how they rebounded the second half, too, because I wrote an article this week talking about how they were trending towards being an elite defense. They did not look like an elite defense in the first half because of one man. George Kittle was murdering them the entire first half, particularly with delayed releases. Jamal Adams was having a lot of trouble early in the game with that. He would start looking like he was going to blitz and then realize, oh, wait, Kittle's going out on a route. He's wide open. And Kittle had a 24-yard touchdown up the seam. He had a 48-yard touchdown down the sideline where he was able to tiptoe his way down and somehow didn't go out of bounds. Incredible balance, broke a couple of tackles, had a couple of other big pass plays. They just had no answer for him in the first half of this game. Didn't do near as much damage out of halftime, but had 181 yards receiving in this game. But otherwise... They really did a fantastic job shutting everybody else down. They forced Jimmy Garoppolo into two really bad interceptions to Bobby Wagner and Quandre Diggs. They held Elijah Mitchell to three yards per carry. They had 71 rushing yards in the entire game, the 49ers did. They were averaging 178 per game in their three-game winning streak. And so just a remarkable display of physicality and superb run fits. I thought Al Woods playing that big end position was a key part of that. And Jordan Brooks, he was bringing the wood all game long. Team high 11 tackles, had a tackle for loss. He had four different plays where he stuffed Mitchell for two or less yards. We are seeing this sophomore linebacker blossom right in front of our eyes. And I felt like he was the catalyst behind this defense, just shutting down and thwarting San Francisco's high octane run game. That was a big reason. They held him out of the score column the entire second half. Yeah, I think that was one of the, that was arguably the biggest reason why the Seahawks won the game is because you knew that San Francisco is going to try to come in to Seattle and be able to establish the running game that has been the NFL's best over the last month or so of the season. Uh, and you know, instead, Seattle, uh, you know, was able to basically seal up the, the running game. You, you mentioned about moving Al Woods out to that big defensive end position. I mean, those are the type of adjustments that we've been waiting to see the Seahawks be able to pull off. And, and while they haven't necessarily been as quick um, as, as you know, what we've seen in the past, um, it certainly was effective against the 49ers. And and to me, that was one of the things that was just so obvious that uh, the, the differences in this game where, where Seattle made mistakes, um, you know, there were some some missed tackles at times, especially against George Kittle. But there also were some very effective tackles at or near the line of scrimmage. Um, you mentioned a lot of them. I mean, Bobby Wagner always deserves a great deal of credit. Certainly Jordan Brooks deserves a great deal of credit. But I, I think I want to give a little bit of credit to Sidney Jones as well. Um, yep. You know, with, uh, with without... Um, Debo Samuel, you knew that San Francisco was going to have to focus in on George Kittle. And you know that a player like Kittle, he is just really, really good. You are going to give up some yards to him. That certainly shouldn't be giving up that much. But at the same time, Seattle was able to clamp down those other wide receivers and basically make San Francisco one-dimensional. And anytime you can make a team one-dimensional, you have a good chance of winning. 
Yeah, I thought Sidney Jones played outstanding football. Really, he's played great for three straight weeks. This is the third game in a row that I gave him an 80 or better grade. I think he's doing a fantastic job. He had a huge pass breakup in the end zone on that goal line stand at the end of the game. Came up and made a big tackle to play before in the run game. So we're seeing Sidney Jones do some things with him being aggressive in the run game and hitting people. That's never necessarily been viewed as a strength in his game. And yet, we're seeing him develop that toughness and that physicality since he's gotten more snaps in Seattle. I, I think for me, the biggest takeaway from this game, the Seahawks won. I'm going to look at this from a positive standpoint. They could have won by 25 points in this game. They had three different possessions where they were deep in 49ers territory and didn't get any points. They weren't able to capitalize off of two of the three turnovers that they were able to produce. They didn't get any points on two of those. So I look at the game, it's like you guys found a way to win despite all those miscues. You know, the fumble by Gerald Everett at the one-yard line, that's killer. You had a touchdown pass from Russell Wilson to Gerald Everett. I mean, this is a game Everett just has to forget about. Move on, short, short-term memory, moving on to the next week. It just wasn't his day. Bobbled that particular pass and gets intercepted by Quan Williams. You get touchdowns on those drives, and this is suddenly a 21-point game. There were other drives that they were moving the football. So I'm looking at it from a positive standpoint. Gerald Everett is not going to play like that. Again, I guarantee it. And I just feel like they were able to get the offense going. They still put up 30 points despite those issues they had. So that would be my biggest takeaway here. There were a lot of mistakes, but the positives far outweighed those mistakes. you got to be really encouraged by all the times that they were almost in the end zone and didn't finish because if they finish those drives suddenly this is one of the most prolific offenses in the NFL again what we expected them to be going into this season so I just think there's a lot to be excited about but obviously a lot of work left to do four games under 500 they got some tough games coming up can they go five and oh to finish the season we'll just have to go one week at a time starting with the Texans on Sunday we'll be breaking that game down the rest of this week along with our other content here on Locked on Seahawks. Thanks, as always, for making Locked on Seahawks your first listen every day. Now make your second listen Locked on Bets, your daily one-stop shop for all your gambling needs. Locked on Bets is hosted by your boy Q with expert analysis and insight from Lee Sterling. You can follow me on Twitter, Corbin Smith NFL. You can follow Rob at Rob Rang. Make sure to check out Locked on Seahawks on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and the new Odyssey app that's AUD. ACY. Coming up on our Tuesday show, it's Tell the Truth Tuesday. We're going to be combing deeper into this past game between the Seahawks and 49ers. One last look before we turn the page to the Houston Texans, and we'll be breaking down Seattle's upcoming Week 14 opponent. It's been a tough year down in Houston, but a young, hungry team. They'll be looking for an upset on their home field. Thanks for listening in. Enjoy the rest of your Monday. Go Hawks.